Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud. It's what women are talking about on Wednesday, the 26th of October. I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman. And I'm Jessie Stevens. Before we start the show today, we want to acknowledge that two of the biggest news stories in the country right now are about violence against Indigenous women and children. On Monday night on the ABC, Four Corners screened an absolutely devastating and that's an overused word, but there really is no other one, report about the rates of violence, murder and the disappearance of Indigenous women around Australia. There is something seriously wrong. You're speaking again about another murder, another woman. We are not just numbers, we're humans. A national silence. This is such a serious human rights violation. We call it Indigenous femicide. And the women breaking it. Aboriginal people are not believed. They simply don't care. We're sick of crying, sick of being in pain, sick of hurting. Enough is enough. We want it! In that piece, it was reported that at least 315 First Nations women have been murdered or gone missing in suspicious circumstances since the year 2000. This number is likely deeply inaccurate, the ABC says, because there's no official agency keeping count. Canada calls it a genocide, they write. The United States considers it an epidemic. But here in Australia, we're only just waking up to the scale of the crisis. Another point raised was that the media do not do a good enough job of reporting on and paying respect to First Nations women killed in family violence situations. We know from a recent government report on family violence that Indigenous women are more than 30 times more likely to be hospitalised due to assault. I'm not going to sit here and suggest that the three of us are going to do this topic justice on Mamma Mia Out Loud today. But what I am going to do is to encourage you to read the incredible reports by the Indigenous reporters who have been talking and writing about this. So please go and watch that episode of Four Corners and please read the accompanying incredible written piece on the ABC. The links are in our show notes. And I'm also going to say that at Mamma Mia, we have been committed to reporting the deaths of Indigenous women and on the issues of family violence in First Nation communities. And this year, we've spoken to many Indigenous women and activists in this space. So we're also going to point you to some of those really important stories. Please watch. Please read. Please listen. That was the first Four Corners that was um, ever done with three female Indigenous reporters, that accompanying piece, which I'm sure you've seen the headline about missing Australian women. There is a really tragic story of a woman named R. Rubuncha, who was an activist and she raised the alarm on violence towards women occurring in Alice Springs. She went to Canberra for a sit-in. She was really, really instrumental in that movement. And then a few years later, she herself was murdered by her partner yeah. in a way that is one of the most devastating ways a human being can be killed. It's, it's just something that's 
so painful to look at. And I think that that alongside the story of Cassius Turvey. This is just the most distressing story. A 15-year-old boy in Perth. He was in school uniform on a Friday afternoon, October the 14th, when he was attacked by a group with a weapon. He suffered catastrophic injuries and eventually died. And it has since come out that his father died of cancer a year before. That's what that family has been through. I think that in the context of what we were talking about last episode, actually, an Indigenous woman refusing to wear a logo that was associated with the name of a man who called for Indigenous genocide, I think this is an important parallel, that this is what's happening to Indigenous people in Australia. It's a reminder of why that issue is so important and why we need to keep covering it. And we will. And the link's in the show notes. Go and take a look. On the show today, why Taylor Swift is being accused of fat phobia. Plus, burnout isn't just for millennials, the essay that blew my mind about midlife pivots and delayed maternity leave. And is throwing soup on art going to save the world? I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. In case you missed it, Kanye West is no longer a billionaire, but he is still a very rich and famous person who continues to sprout disgusting anti-Semitism and align himself with white supremacists. Overnight, Adidas announced that it had cut ties with a rapper and designer whose fortune has really been built on his partnerships with big brands like Adidas and Gap, who have both now terminated their contracts along with pretty much everyone else that he's worked with or is working with, including his publicist, management company, lawyer, music label, and other fashion brands like Balenciaga and Vogue, who have all said they will no longer work with him. But the Adidas deal was the really big one, and they will be ending production of items under West's Yeezy brand and stop all payments to the musician and his companies. It is estimated that because of that, Kanye's net worth overnight plummeted $400 million US. And it will cost the company around $250 million US in lost profits. A lot of people have been yelling at Adidas to do this for, it's been over a week now since Kanye actually gave an interview where he said, I can make anti-Semitic comments and Adidas aren't going to dump me. And that's been over a week. And lots of people have been pressured to come out and condemn him, including his former wife, Kim Kardashian, and lots of people who've worked alongside him. And a lot of people said that Adidas haven't been fast enough to make this move. Mm. What do we think about that? I actually disagree with that. I think that it's really easy for someone like Vogue to come out and say, we won't be working with Kanye West anymore. But Adidas, the two brands are so intertwined. And when you're talking about really, really big contracts like this, you can't just rip them up overnight. And I think that there is a degree of naivety about people who sit on the sidelines. I know that Brene Brown spoke about this when there was all the kerfuffle around Spotify and Joe Rogan's show and she had a podcast with Spotify and she said, I'm just going to pause my show while I find more information. And people said the same thing about her, like, why don't you just walk away? And she said, you can't just walk away from contracts. And if you look at the impact of Yeezy and Adidas, it's not just about money. Like they might have thought, well, maybe he'll apologise. The logistics involved in unscrambling the egg of those two brands that has been an incredibly lucrative partnership for both. I mean, I think a week is a pretty Mm. quick amount of time to turn it around, to be honest. Yeah, and you don't want it to be an empty statement. You want to be able to really walk your walk by the time you come out and say something. And I think that 
And it's funny that we feel like a week is a long time. It feels like a long time because of how quickly these stories roll out. But mm. a week isn't a long time. I reckon Adidas has done a brilliant job and it just it shows the consequences of those kind of words. It's also, I think, a kind of important evolution point in what is broadly called cancel culture, that everybody yells for an immediate response for everybody. But actually taking a moment working it out and doing it properly is much more impactful. And this is probably the biggest actual repercussion so far for Kanye. Yeah, it is. And I think everybody has been hoping that he would apologize, apologize, back down, but he's doubled down and tripled down. And yes, he has the freedom of speech to say those things, but this is the consequence of that freedom of speech. For a change of pace, Taylor Swift released her new album called Midnight's on Friday, and I'm now going to perform a small selection of my favourite songs. Oh, my God. Oh, no, 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 no. Somebody no. cut the feed. Yes. We're in someone else's studio today because we're recording in Melbourne, so we could get someone to just press a big red button and cancel me right next. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to sing. But Taylor Swift has actually been accused of fat phobia due to a scene in the music video for the first single, Anti-Hero. On Twitter, Swift described the video as depicting my nightmare scenarios and intrusive thoughts. And some of those include watching her imagined adult children fight about their inheritance, being a larger-than-life monster who takes up too much space with her friends, and stepping on a scale, and she looks down at the scale and there's the word fat on the scale. And there's a another tailor that's sort of yelling, depicted as yelling and her, berating yeah. her. Immediately after its release, people started criticising the use of the word fat, calling the video fatphobic and insensitive. When you portray fat as a bad thing in your music video, even for a second, all of the young impressionable people watching that video are going to internalise that the worst thing they can be is fat. This is problematic because she could have just learned that being fat is not bad. That they like it was easy. It's not. It's a lot of unlearning and it's a lot of understanding that the concept of being fat And the negative connotation behind it is because of societal standards. Now, Taylor has never specified any specific disordered eating diagnosis, but she certainly hinted at it. In her Netflix documentary, Miss Americana, she talked about instances in her life where she would stop eating after seeing photos of herself where I feel like I looked like my tummy was too big or someone said that I looked pregnant. And she expanded on this in an interview she gave with Variety, saying that she would exercise a lot but not eat and implied that she struggled with her relationship to food. So that gives a little bit of context as to that imagery in that video. Now, Shira Rosenbluth, who is a licensed clinical social worker who specialises in helping clients with body image issues and disordered eating, she's called out Swift's use of the word fat, like many have, on Twitter, calling it a shitty way to describe her body image struggles. She says, fat people don't need to have it reiterated yet again that it's everyone's worst nightmare to look like us. She was one of a lot of critics to accuse Swift of fat phobia, which of course then led to a wave of Swifties coming to her defence, kicking off a debate on fat phobia, disordered eating and body dysmorphia. Do we really know Taylor? Taylor Swift is a celebrity. She has an outwardly facing image that's so highly curated. So do we know what she's like in real life behind closed doors? I think not. I don't have a problem with her showing what her eating disorder sounds like to her. Jesse, what do you think? Does Taylor have the right to, you know, use that word in the context or? It's a question about 
art and whether you can sometimes reflect without critique. I've read a number of fiction because I love women's fiction and there will be an internal monologue of a woman who is maybe portrayed as from the outside relatively thin. There's one book I'm thinking of called Milk Fed, which is about an eating disorder and the language that the protagonist uses could be interpreted as quite fat phobic. The complication is that fat phobia is in some ways a quality or inherent to an eating disorder. It doesn't mean that you are projecting that fat phobia onto others, but the fear of fat is something that is quite literally a pathology. And so I see what Taylor Swift is doing here. I don't think that it's meant to be about anyone else. I looked at it, I watched the film clip and I thought what I think this whole song and this clip is about is women and their anxieties and reflecting those and it's a deeply personal, almost like a diary entry. And so for her to say that, I thought it made sense. And then for people to go, oh, you can't use the word fat is actually something that can really stigmatise eating disorders because people who are living with eating disorders, and I'm not saying Taylor Swift does, although I think we have evidence of disordered eating, they're stigmatised as bad or judgmental or vain when really it's an obsession with what's on the scale. And to me, that was a reflection as well of the social paradigms that make her feel that way, not that fat is bad. Okay. Jessie just used lots of very long words and lots of very highfalutin arguments, which is as she should because she's right and everything she says there. But come on, this is not a diary entry. This is a music video that Taylor Swift has made to sell a song, right? She didn't need to do that. In our job, we talk publicly about all kinds of things that we know might push people's buttons, upset people, use the wrong language for something, use the wrong word for something. And we consider all the time, is that the right word to use for that? Are we going to piss people off if we use that word? And then we make calls on it because you might say, you know what, this is a really important conversation. I really want to say this. So it's worth stirring Mm. the pot. When Taylor Swift made the decision for the scales in that video to go to a big, bald F-A-T, she knew what she was doing. And she knew there'd be pushback. Now, I'm not saying that pushback is right or wrong or whatever, but it was there. It was always going to happen. So she's made a very specific artistic decision to go there, to do it. And now the people who are coming out criticize her are absolutely right to do so. I would never. We've talked a lot about on this show about how we talk about weight, how we feel about weight. And I have learned because I've spent years writing and working in women's media that it is not okay for me to sit around and go, I feel fat. I've understood because I've listened and learned that that is not a word that is mine to bandy around publicly. And Taylor Swift has learned the same lesson. So if she's doing it, she's doing it because she wants people to talk about it and that's fine, but I'm not going to feel sorry for her about the criticism. Is there another way that she could have made that point? Did she need to make that point? Clearly she did. If you are a woman in the public eye who is full of anxiety, I think to pretend as though... Could she just have seen the scale go, ooh, and not go to any particular number or letters I think she'd get exactly the same pushback if she'd done Well, I think you're probably right, Mm. but there's a lot of stuff about that particular word that's pushed a button in this. I understand what you're saying. I I don't disagree with any of it. But isn't the whole pushback proving her point? I think they're arguing the same thing. I think it probably is. Because as a woman in the world, 
yes, it's awful that we are conditioned to believe that smaller is better, but we're all living in this same world and we're trying to make it different, but that doesn't change the fact that it's not yet. Yes. So but, I, uh, I think how, it's so galling. So to how see. do you, how do you express that, Holly? How do you express? I think you could do it in lots of that ways pressure. that don't involve using that word. Well, the thing is, she definitely can't have a number. We know mm-hmm. that. So she had to represent it somehow on a scale. And to me, the second I saw that, and I have to acknowledge that I'm a straight-sized person, and therefore how I look at it is coloured by that. But I saw it and went, she is criticising the connotation that fat is bad. And I get that and it's clever and she's allowed to do that. Mm. But all I'm saying is there are not that many people who swim in the culture in the way that Taylor Swift certainly does who didn't know that that word, that particular word, is going to piss off a whole lot of people who all they see is a very thin, glorious, gorgeous, white blonde lady thinking that fat is the worst thing she could be. And even though I get that that's the critique she's making, Mm, mm. throwing that word on herself is going to upset a lot of people and I get it. Yeah, the idea that that is your worst nightmare, what other people's reality is, I completely understand why that's upset people. I'm going to challenge what you said, Hull, about she would have known and done it anyway. I disagree. It's like saying that Beyonce would have known Mm. that the word she used or Lizzo would have known that the word she used would have caused problems. I don't think any artist does this deliberately. I think that you can have, I guess, what you would call straight-size blindness or the privilege of being straight-sized you would not know this stuff. And I I think you're right. I think we learn by listening to other people's perspectives what's offensive, what's upsetting, you know, what makes other people feel bad. And then you make your own decisions about whether or not that's still a very important artistic choice for you, you know, which is also true with changed lyrics and all those things. Is like maybe you decide, I know this is going to upset some people and I'll explain why I made the decision, but I'm making the decision anyway because it's important Mm. to my story. That's a totally valid position, but Mm. just don't be surprised when people are upset. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that she would have presented that thinking it was going to upset people, but I think that when it's put in the context of disordered eating, then I feel uncomfortable censoring some women's experience because Mm. there are other women out there who are bigger than her. I'm Amira Out Loud. It's Janelle. And Jess. From Swan Hill on the Murray. Sadly, we're a bit flooded at the moment and can't make it Wednesday night. Which we're devastated about. We had our tickets 10 minutes into them going on sale. But we hope our friend Cara enjoys the show for us and we'll certainly be watching it back live. We absolutely love Out Loud. Love it. Gets us through the week. Can't believe we're missing you. Love you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Okay, so the young people talk about burnout a lot. So much so, in fact, that you might think they invented it. 
But an essay in the UK Times this week is being madly shared by my midlife friends this week. And I want to talk about it because I think we can all learn a lot from it. Marianne Jones is a British journalist in her mid-50s. And on Sunday, an essay by her ran in the UK Times called How the Job I Love Nearly Killed Me. Now, obviously, she works in a similar industry to me and some of my friends who are sharing this madly. But I think there'll be a lot of women who recognise what she wrote about. In the essay, she talked about how she has had an amazing career in a field that she loves, but that she has worked, 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 worked. As a Generation X woman, she says, there was no space ever to be like, oh, I need to pull back my mental health. I need to look after myself, all that stuff. It just wasn't language that we used. She it was ru- the opposite. Exactly. You would cover up any sort of perceived vulnerabilities or frailties that you might have. Work like a man was the deal and men weren't suffering from burnout in those days. Of course, they were. We mm. all know about the midlife crisis and collapse and heart attacks and all the rest of it. But our goal was to keep going. So she wrote, through most of my career, wellness and self-care weren't even words, let alone industry. Anyone over 45 who had full-on jobs in the 80s and 90s knows that discussing their mental health would have got them about as far as the door-named exit. To survive in journalism, you did not under any circumstances show weakness or vulnerability. Even while working for a feminist women's magazine in the early noughties, I would never admit to going to my son's school assemblies for fear of being labelled a shirker. I have only cried a handful of times in my life and never once in the toilet. So while it's ridiculous to verbalise this in 2022, I felt like a loser for allowing stress to floor me because stress did floor her. What happened was... Over the course of the pandemic, she said we all went home. She was editing a Sunday supplement magazine in the UK called Stella. Now, those magazines are really big deals in the mm. um, in the UK papers. The Sunday papers in Britain are like a massive thing and everybody reads them and whether or not you can get a great cover and the best writers in the country write for them. And she writes about how, you know, she pivoted to work really hard through that whole period and keep everything going and keep everyone employed and all those things. And then it was coming out of that that she began to wobble. She began to get symptoms that were similar to vertigo, dizziness, heart racing. She was exhausted all the time. She lost her sparkle in inverted commas. She said everybody was worried about her and stress did floor her and she ended up basically being diagnosed with burnout, directed to take a period of time off work, and she's changed her life as a result. One of the interesting things she said, because she said her children at the time were 18 and 21, and she told them that she was having the maternity leave that she never properly took when they were babies and had been on hand for A-levels and job interviews since. When I told you about this and showed you this story, you said to me, I didn't know that midlife people got burnt out. Tell me. I said I feel as though millennials have co-opted burnout and a lot of us believe we invented it and that Gen Xs actually don't get it. And I think that it's because there's a stoicism that is sort of part of that generation. Mm. And maybe you expect that as people get older, they find better coping mechanisms or something. We just didn't know it was an option. Yes, to fall in a heap. So I think that there are a few myths about burnout that this blows open. One is generational, which is that actually you can be in a career for decades and decades and fall in a heap after that. Mm. The other one is that, and this has been a real revelation, that you can burn out doing what you love. I read a bunch of literature when this first came out and it was kind of like people running businesses and they stopped loving it or they went into a career like a lawyer or a doctor and they went, actually, this isn't for me. I'm not finding it satisfying. I'm doing 70, 80 hour weeks. And I didn't know that it was possible to burn out doing something that you actually really, really want to do. And so I'm finding that 
quite interesting to read these stories of people going, no, I, I loved it, but I still had these physical symptoms. And in um, Yumiko Kadoda's book, Emotional Female, she writes about burnout at length. You think it's mental? It's actually not like your body shuts down, which mm. is what she's saying, which mm, is yeah. like the vertigo and the physical symptoms. You think you're like dying. Well, her blood pressure was really high. She was dangerously unwell. Yes. So she said it was a, the effects on the body of prolonged periods of stress. So basically being in high adrenaline situations for decades because that's your job, yep. right? As, and there are lots of professions where that's the case. Mia, do you think she's a wuss bag? Yes, no, <laughs> I don't actually. Do you know, I think that the reason that she's expressing this, it's not generational, it's pandemical. I um, spoke to a lot of people at our recent upfronts, people I didn't know, and we had this big advertiser function and I must have spoken to, I don't know, 50 people and, you know, in that small talk way and asking people and a lot of people had just got back from holidays, got back from overseas, a lot of people went over to see family and every single person used the word burnout, every single person, yeah. no matter what age they were. And I think what's really important to understand about now is that it's not about how old you are. It's not about what job you do. It's not even about how stressed you are. It's about the fact that now COVID is over, and I think we can pretty much say that, or now we're living with the post-COVID world, all the adrenaline that we've had for the last three years that has sustained us in that fight mm. or flight mode that we've had to, to just cope with uncertainty, distress, upheaval, inconvenience, all of those things, we're not in danger anymore. So our body has gone, okay, we can turn down those levels of adrenaline. And what's left is a husk. Mm. And you know, people are like, well, but why am I feeling like this now? It's because it's over. And I think that there's nobody who cruised through the last three years. And the other thing I know about burnout is that there's a type of burnout that is not necessarily about stress. It's not even necessarily about the hours you work, but it is the psychological burnout of doing the same thing again and again and again and again. But I got the sense that she still loved yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But like, I want to... One of the things I think is interesting about the generational aspect of this, all that's true, Mia, of course, about the fact that post-pandemic we're all husks to a point, but it's that it's very hard for Generation X people who have, women in particular, who have internalised their whole life yep. this hardcore work ethic and pushing really hard and getting that seat at the table and they love it and they think if I pause, if I breathe, if I put my hand up and say I'm not coping, mm -hmm. I'm going to lose it all. Most people I know when it comes to work, if they were allowed to have the kind of work life they want, they'd say I want a job I love that doesn't kill me, right? And it often feels like those aren't the choices. The choices are you either have a job you love and it entirely consumes you and you work all the fucking time at it or you're not trying hard enough or you can have a kind of semi or right kind of job that doesn't, you don't really love but you get balance. And I think that's something that Generation X has really internalised is that balance is only for mediocre jobs, people, yeah lives and people I think who don't we, want to be brilliant yeah, people who yeah. don't want to strive mm. and I think that's a real issue for women like Marianne and I identify with it and I know lots of people who do is it's like I want to be brilliant but I also don't want to be sick 
You know what I mean? You know, I wonder, and I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Carrie because I don't know if she's burnt out or not, but it's almost reminiscent of that in that the maternity leave later because she's got three kids and she's got her yeah, oldest son. I love son. that maternity leave later. Yeah, thing. it's almost like these women going, maybe you need a few maternity leaves or paternity leaves or like there should be like periods of parental leave that you just get to take that are like, oh, I thought it's, you know, funny looking forwards and going, when I have kids, you take six months off, then you go back and you work till the day you die. Mm. It's like, no, there, there are other responsibilities that come up. Is it possible to have a job you love that doesn't kill you, Mia Friedman? I... <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't understand the question. <laughs> Don't understand the question because everyone always tells me to work less. Everyone always tells me to work less and I could work less. Of course you could. But I don't want to. I regenerate quite fast. I don't know whether that's my ADHD or just my personality. I can't unscramble them. But I know what burnout feels like. I do. Mm. But then I will shift. I'll shift something. Because you have your own business, there's freedom in going, I'm burnt out from X, it's I'm going to lean into Y. Because one of the things Marianne says in yeah. this too is she says, finally, age 55, no one's the boss of me anymore. And that's a particular type of mm. pressure that, you know, you don't have if it is your own business. That's not true because when it's your own business, we it's have a twice different kind as hard. of pressure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I won't say it's twice as hard because you, you're in control of your hours, but there are more hours and there are more stresses mm. and there are more things to be worried about. I like this idea of sabbaticals. I like that. That's what long service leave is for, right? You mm. know, but why does it have to, to be recharge. about breaks? Why does it have to be like either pedal to the metal all the time and then you can take a break and then pedal to the metal again? Why can't we create a work model that is a little bit more sustainable than that? Well, it's not about choice for everybody. I won't say that. But, you know, when you talk about burnout and stress, you're writing books, you have a full-time job, you don't have to write books. No, of You course. don't have to work at Mamma Mia. Of course. You don't have to be on this podcast. No. <laughs> Am I being fired today for daring to voice the people? She's so ungrateful. <laughs> but, but my point is doing a lot of things and working really hard some of it is about, but this is the opportunity that is in front of me now. Of course. But what I mean is I don't mean this about personal, like my choices, your choices. I mean, is it possible for us to unscramble this culture of it's everything or nothing? If you want to make Out Loud part of your routine five days a week, we release segments on Tuesdays and Thursdays just for Mamma Mia subscribers. To get full access, follow the link in the show notes and a big thank you to all our current subscribers. Earlier this month, a video went viral of two young people, and they belong to the activist group Just Stop Oil, throwing canned tomato sauce onto the painting Sunflowers by legendary artist Vincent van Gogh in London's National Gallery. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food, worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people. Importantly, the painting was covered in glass, so it didn't actually ruin the original. Did anyone else read the headline and think it ruined the original? 100%. I got my knickers in a knot, Same as we say Same. about this. I, I shook like, my head. I nearly was one of those people sharing it going, yeah. they've just gone, too, they've far. gone too far. And then I read the glass and I was like, oh. Oh, that's okay. fine. <laughs> they then glued themselves to the wall behind it. Now, Just Stop Oil is a coalition of groups that work together to ensure the government commits to halting new fossil fuel licensing and production. 
This isn't the first protest staged in an art gallery lately. There was also just a few weeks ago at the National Gallery of Victoria and Melbourne, two activists from the international group Extinction Rebellion, who are known for quite, you know, out there protests, they glued their hands to the perspex covering of Pablo Picasso's massacre in Korea, according not okay. to BuzzFeed News. Again, Holly, there was perspex. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> There's always perspex, Holly. <laughs> perspex. Additionally, Relax. they oh, laid goldfish. out banner that read... <laughs> terrible. Oh, that's okay. Climate chaos equals war and famine. The statement highlighted the connection between climate breakdown and human suffering. Now, these Just Stop Oil activists have been called Philistines, barbarians, idiots and terrorists, all by Holly when she thought there wasn't glass. <laughs> Others say this needs to be disruptive given we're headed towards an unlivable planet. And some have said the planet has no protective glass covering. Um, Eileen Getty. That's that's good. Yeah, isn't it? The granddaughter of John Paul Getty, who founded Getty Oil. She's incredible. She's a philanthropist who's given all her money to climate emergency funds. She wrote a remarkable opinion piece in The Guardian, which basically said she supported the actions of the Just Stop Oil group. And she finished her op-ed with the line, as the planet burns, we are approaching a time when all we'll have left are pictures and paintings of our beloved earth and urban art galleries may be the final resting place for earth's sunflowers. Oh my God. Holly, have I changed your mind by giving you a couple of facts? Okay. (laughs) It's interesting because Obviously, I'm very sympathetic with let's save the planet. Yeah. I'm very sympathetic with there's no perspex over the planet. And I'm very sympathetic with us living with some disruption when it comes to protests because often, and I think we had this argument before on the show, didn't we, about the climate protests who are like gluing themselves to the street to stop brush hour traffic, climbing the harbour bridge and closing it down, all of those things. I do think that we get to a point where social protest and social justice causes have to step the game up and up to get attention you know and this goes right back to the suffragette who threw herself in front of a horse it's that thing of like otherwise your cause and your complaints become wallpaper what do you need to do to get the glare of the attention back Mm -hmm. on you I worry about okay so there's perspex I'm feeling much safer about that but there will be an incident where there isn't because you've got to step it up right so there'll be an incident where Somebody does really ruin something priceless. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the value of anything. I don't give a stuff how much Van Gogh's sunflowers cost monetarily. But I do have respect for art and history. And when I say that, I very much include all kinds of art. I think very much the same thing about, you know, Indigenous rock art and sites that need to be protected and not mined, for example. I think it would be an absolute tragedy for those things to be damaged or ruined. Not the same level of tragedy as the earth dying. I think we can all agree on that perspective. So I don't know that I particularly like this style. Also, I would question it because to play along with really broad stereotypes, certainly in an international context, the kind of people who go to art galleries, they're reading The Guardian, they're sipping lattes, they're like, they care about art and they're probably the people who are recycling and whatever, you know. I, I, whose attention do we need to get? When you look at the difference between this and the people who block the tunnels and mm. disrupt traffic, by doing that you're pissing people off. You're getting attention but you are also really pissing people off and making them very unsympathetic to your cause, even if they were sympathetic to your cause because you've disrupted their lives. I think this is about 
getting attention, but it's not disruptive. I mean, it's disruptive to the people who are at the gallery, but it's not just about the people who are at the gallery. It's about everybody. We're talking about it on this podcast. It's about every headline that everybody sees. And I think it's actually really genius because nobody gets hurt. Nothing gets hurt. They glue themselves so that they can keep shouting whatever it is that they want to shout and be photographed and not just be hustled away. I actually think it's, it's a about, it's a victimless crime. It's, into it. it's about the attention economy and yeah. people have been chaining themselves to trees for a very long time. Yeah. Um, it is about disruption and also, as you say, escalation. I do share a little bit of your fear and I've got to check myself whether that's rational, but the escalation of these sorts of things where we go because it is the planet and you could argue there is nothing more important, there is nothing more urgent. Scientists have been speaking calmly about this for decades yeah. and we are not moving fast enough. So people are making these big kind of gestures that uh, to get headlines and to get media attention. I worry about escalation because I worry about where the end point is and if this will turn into some sort of terror. Yeah. And I think that's because when you rationalise it like that, you go, well, where do we stop? Yeah, because it isn't an exchange, right? That isn't mm. actually what's happening here. If Van Gogh's sunflowers really were ruined, it's not like anyone saying, can we please swap Van Gogh's sunflowers for the future of the planet? If we could do that, I think most people would agree we could lose the sunflowers. Mm. But that's not what will happen. If Van Gogh's sunflowers got slashed, burnt, didn't exist anymore, it's not like the planet would be safe. Yeah, and I suppose it is symbolic, but I think about war and how much, like ancient Persia, for example, we just lost that because mm. of wars and bombs and what's been dropped in the Middle East or, or whatever, and you just think you never, ever get that back. So history, I get my back up and I kind of go, oh, don't touch it. Like even getting that close to it, you go, oh, is it going to be a bit dangerous? But the real threat in terms of terror is environmental terror at the moment. So I also see my own hypocrisy with that. But the fact is we're talking about it. We're not moving fast enough. And hopefully this just puts the pressure on more and more. You've got a recommendation before we go, Jessie. I do. Look, a lot of outlouders will have read it. It is the essay in the Times UK by Rob Delaney. Has anyone read it? I haven't read it. I've listened to his How to Fail episode. He's written a book about his son. He has. His book is called A Heart That Works. It is one of the most moving articles I've ever read. He is a comedian. He wrote the show Catastrophe. Mm. And in 2016, his career was peaking and he ended up accepting an award from the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, a BAFTA, and he made this speech and it was brilliant. And then it was the next day that he and his wife were told that he's... Um, youngest son looked to have a brain tumour. And this article is about what happens on the worst day of your life, basically, and the grief that they endured. And Henry, their little boy, died at two years old. And it's something about that happening in his private life while his career was soaring, how he tried to protect his relationship, how the family survived it. There are moments of such beauty and tenderness. But I, I read this and I never, cry. I'm just not a crier. I read this, bawled my eyes out. So you will bawl your eyes out, but it is a stunning piece of writing in the Times UK by Rob Delaney. We'll link it in the show notes. Trini Woodall came to Mamma Mia last week and there have been a lot of questions about what it was like, what happened, what went on behind the scenes, what does she look like without her clothes on because <laughs> she and I got changed in my office before we did some dancing shenanigans. 
On our subscriber episode yesterday, we talk all about it. Holly and Jesse, who weren't there, had a million questions because they also saw it on social media. They asked me lots and lots of questions about what Trini's like and what happened when she came in. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. You can listen right now. Thank you for listening to today's Mama Mia Out Loud. If you're in Melbourne, we're going to see you tonight. We've got a massive live show in Melbourne tonight. It's going to be filmed so that everybody can mm-hmm. see it. Precious so on. It's our Netflix special. Also be, oh my God, don't say that. There's also going to be a link in our show notes today for how you get to see this show. It's not being streamed tonight, but it is in the future. All the details will be in the show notes. This episode is produced by the wonderful Emma Gillespie with audio production from Leah Porges. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. 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 Big thanks to anyone listening who has become a Mamma Mia subscriber. Subscribers get access to every podcast, exclusive videos, and all the great articles on Mamma Mia. Subscriptions cost as little as $5.75 a month. There's a link in our show notes.